Let's get into the weeds. I'm your host, Brian Brown, Integrated Weed Management Specialist with the New York State IPM Program. And today we'll be talking about four different weed management systems for organic winter squash. Specifically, cultivation, black plastic mulch, straw mulch, and a roller crimp rye mulch. And my two wonderful guests this week are... I'm Abby Seaman. I'm the Vegetable IPM Coordinator with the New York State Integrated Pest Management Program. And I'm Marcus Lopez. I'm a technician and extension aide for New York State IPM. Whose idea was this anyway? (laughs) Well, the trial was kind of a spin-off of an earlier set of experiments investigating the efficacy of various organic pesticides. Our advisory committee said that growers were interested in growing mulch in place. With a rolled rye. With a rolled rye. Yeah, it's such an elegant system in theory. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this is the time to say that the transplant sat there and did not grow at all. Which, you know, I'm curious about that uh, because I've I've heard from more growers recently that um, the rolled rye can kind of suck moisture from the ground. And I'm wondering... If we had irrigation last year, I'm wondering if that would have solved it or if it was if it was a nitrogen immobilization issue. In a dry spring, I think that's where rye is a problem. But once you kill it, we had plenty of rain last year. I don't feel like it was water. But we have the data. Yeah, I was going to say we have all that soil moisture data from every different treatment. So we could just look at that and see if the rye was lower on average. Yeah, I took a look a few weeks ago, and it it wasn't a whole lot lower, but I think that the soil was um, was denser, was you know more compact, mm-hmm. and so I think that it could have held more. So I think the relative moisture in the soil might have been lower. While we're on the rye, uh, maybe Marcus, can you talk about the scouting you did for the anthesis early on? Yeah, so it's important to scout for anthesis when you're going to do a rolled rye system because you want to roller crimp the rye before it can go to seed or else you have a big weed problem with the rye. So I was going out every week rating the anthesis with the Zadox scale and once it got closer to reaching anthesis and once it was flowering, it was I was checking every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, early, too early and you won't get a high kill rate and then too late and you'll have uh, rye going to seed and you'll have a lot of volunteer rye in that year's crop, which uh, which we didn't really we didn't really see that. Right, so we we must have hit it just about on the nose and it was difficult because we got some big rain and windstorms right about that period and um the all of the anthers blew off yeah that was <laughs> that was an unforeseen issue we almost might have rolled the ride just a little bit early because i remember not all of it was killed perfectly at first well i was wondering if volunteer ride how much of an issue would it have been because we got all that volunteer wheat 
from the straw mulch, and it didn't, well, something was happening in that treatment, but it didn't seem to be a huge, a huge problem. Yeah, that's a good point, and uh, Matt Ryan uh, with Cornell makes that point frequently too that yeah so say you do get rye that goes to seed and you get volunteer rye that year the rye has to overwinter before it flowers and sets seed so it just kind of stays small for that whole year and you get what i think i've heard him refer to as like a free cover crop transplanting into the rye was particularly difficult because of all the stalks yeah they were kind of blocking the transplanter from getting good penetration. And that was after we had done some zone tillage with like a key line plow type implement to loosen things up for the water wheel transplanter to actually make a divot and, uh, and show us where to plant. For the ease of the actual transplanting process, you need loose soil. But from a weed management perspective, you want to do as little disturbance to the soil as possible to kind of keep weeds from being stimulated and and germinating right in the crop row, um, which we definitely had last year from that early um, zone tillage. We had uh, a lot of common ragweed in particular germinating and um, some winter annuals. I think that this year uh, we're hoping to get by without the the zone tillage and are actually seeding into the rolled rye and I, I think we're just going to be plopping down a, a, a handful of granular pelletized chicken manure basically at each planting hole so that we're sure each seedling has sufficient fertility and, and that uh, nitrogen immobilization won't be a factor. Just kind of thinking about a rolled rye system on a larger acreage, if Somebody would want to have a no-till planter that could put down fertilizer at planting. Mm-hmm. Something that could handle the rye and also put down fertilizer right in the planting row. So the carbon of the rye, that can bind up nitrogen as well, can't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think we probably had some of that last year. Did you look any more into the possible allelopathic effects of the rye? Most cover crops in general can have an allelopathic effect for one to two weeks after termination. So um, it's typically advised that you want to wait to plant until after that period has passed. Um, Now, allelopathy is going to be most problematic on small seeded crops. Um, So things like corn and soybeans and like with our winter squash, they I think they should have a large enough seed that they should be able to grow right through that potentially allelopathic zone. So allelopathy may have been an issue for the transplants in the rolled rye treatment. But this was also our weediest treatment, and there was a lot of common ragweed. Filled with ragweed. And that's what Matt Ryan has found is is typically the worst weed in rolled rye, because it, it is one of our earliest weeds to emerge in New York. And it's, it's germinating and emerging before you roll the rye into a suppressive mulch. Um, should we talk about our, our moldy straw? 
<laughs> or lessons learned. Lessons learned. <laughs> so, I'll, I, I thought I had this brilliant idea that that and and I actually didn't didn't come up with this. Um, I've I've seen a lot of small gardeners and farmers use this before. Is to leave out the straw over the winter, or at least set it out early in the spring so that it soaks through and any grain that's remaining in the straw from when it was harvested gets sprouted and you don't have to deal with that when it's in the crop. Um, but unfortunately for us, we did that. We, we put out the straw in March. It was beautiful. I, I took these pictures of, of the tops of all the straw bales looked like a lawn with, with the, the sprouting wheat. Uh, and then we just flipped them over to kind of terminate that. And uh, and I was flying high. I thought this is the most beautiful system in the world. And then we we mulched two of the two of the blocks, and um, I actually had some respiratory issues from breathing in all the moldy straw. Uh, I actually went to the hospital. Every single bale was Nasty. highly colonized with Nasty. inky cap mushrooms, predominantly. So we were all covered in black spores, all the ink, and it, it must have been all the inky cap spores that irritated your lungs. And we were all wearing masks, weren't we? We were, we were wearing masks, yeah. Maybe, maybe not the best mask. You could just smell the mildew and the mold in the air. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a risk in, in, in an IPM context. You know, we want to incorporate, you know, not just risks from from pesticides or from you know uh when to spray and economics but also human health and environmental risks so that's definitely something to take into consideration so the second half of the experiment we actually mulched with dry straw and uh, didn't have any pulmonary issues the dry straw was also easy to pick up the bells while the wet straw it was super heavy, it was falling apart, it was slippery. The twine was disintegrating. It was nasty. It, yeah, it was gross. But it did work pretty well. Yeah, and it had started to break down, so I'm assuming there was less of a, a risk of nitrogen immobilization from the high, I mean, straw, fresh dry straw is <laughs> like pure carbon almost. Um, yeah, and and in the in the dry straw we had a lot of volunteer wheat, yes. which again wasn't such a big deal because it was winter wheat and it it didn't end up heading out on us. Um, it just kind of stayed low to the ground, um, and actually looked really beautiful at the end of the season. It was kind of like a green carpet. It almost acted as like a bonus cover crop, out competing other weeds that could have been germinating through the dry straw. Yeah, like an interseeded kind of, uh, yeah, mid-season cover crop. So, you know, and, and if we were, if that was a whole field, you wouldn't have to, to seed a cover crop for, for your winter season, you know, and you wouldn't, you know, there were no weeds there. We had put a high enough rate down that there are very few weeds, if any, in any of the straw treatments. So the mulch ended up being the most expensive treatment, correct? We haven't really done an overall think, economic yeah, analysis I yet. I haven't looked at that yet. When I've, when I've done the systems comparison before in onions, I, I think it was 
the most expensive because you have the the materials expense of the mulch and then you have the hand labor required to apply it and we did it in 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 a pretty quick fashion you know we just dropped we just drove over the field with the pickup dropping off the bales where needed and spread them as quick as we could you know the crop was so widely spaced that we weren't like with onions we had to carefully you know painstakingly put it around each little plant but well and i think if if a grower again was a larger acreage grower who had access to a lot of equipment and capital for equipment there's hay choppers or straw choppers that you can get and kind of just blow it out and hopefully direct it in between the the rows maybe you would want to do that before transplanting so then you'd have a nice thick layer and then you can just with your hands pull open a little hole and transplant in yeah it's it's a it's a tough balance because the natural mulches like straw and hay really cool the soil and so if you do it too early the soil just never warms up and it really stunts the the crop i've seen a few times Back in Maine, there's a few farmers that utilize a lot of mulch, and they'll typically wait for their crop to get up, well, at least six inches, maybe a foot tall, so it can withstand all that mulch coming in, and it lets the soil warm up too. And the mulch, I mean, when you're putting on nine tons per acre, which is what a lot of the studies have shown is is needed to be effective for the whole season, that's a ton. I mean, that was fluffy that was like a foot and a half of mulch was, yeah. and i th- i think even if you had small cotyledon or one inch two inch tall weeds it might even be able to suppress those at that time if i was going to choose one i would probably go with the straw mulch and i'd like to grow it myself harvest your own straw yes okay <laughs> i remember talking with you about that brian as whether we could grow a, a rye Crop, cover crop just to harvest for mulch and I don't think we have the equipment but I feel like that would be an option is to do a rye cover crop harvest the rye before before it, there's any seed formation and that that would be really clean you'd only yeah. need a few acres of that to cover the area that we covered right yeah so uh some some farmers that I know who mulch a lot um I think estimate that they have about five to ten times as much land area in mulch production as they do in in vegetable production. Okay, now we'll talk about the cultivation treatment. So just repeated cultivation is is probably the most common weed control method in organic squash in New York. On a large scale, anyways. I'm partial to cultivating, and I uh, I cultivated with our uh, our cult crest cultivators set with um, flat sweeps and uh, and finger weeders to cultivate in the row. And I think we used the finger weeders twice, and uh, we had to take them off late in the season as the crop expanded. Um, but cultivation worked uh, worked pretty well, and you know. I honestly didn't nail the timing with the cultivation. Uh, like I, 
there were a couple times where I came back and I was surprised how much the weeds had grown while I was away. And uh, since the last time I checked on the field and they were a little bit too tall, um, but we were able to uh, to kind of to go with more aggressive cultivation in that case and kind of uh, catch up uh, and then do uh, I guess I guess a total of three cultivations and then one very quick um, hoeing to control any escapes. One key difference in this treatment was that it was direct seeded rather than transplanted which, as Abby will explain, is a trade-off. I think squash doesn't, in general, like to be transplanted. I think it's much more successful as a direct-seeded crop. The advantage to transplanting in squash is that a striped cucumber beetle can absolutely decimate direct-seeded squash if you have a high enough population, and mm -hmm. transplanting gets the plants out of that vulnerable stage more quickly. Okay, and then for the plastic mulch, uh, black plastic is, is used on a lot of different farms. It's primarily used um, for heat-loving crops, solanaceous crops, cucurbit crops, uh, and it also does an excellent job at suppressing weeds. Just about the only weed I know of that's able to penetrate through plastic is yellow nutch sedge, which emerges with these very sharp leaves coming straight out of the ground. Um, and you can sometimes get weeds coming through the planting hole if, if the planting hole was made too large. But to get around that, I know uh, many farmers will apply the plastic a few weeks ahead of planting, so uh, so there's no holes in it at that time, and it will kind of exhaust the weed seed bank before planting, because any weeds that sprouted, germinated, emerged, um, will kind of run out of energy and die since they won't be able to access any sunlight. We were hoping to cultivate between the rows of plastic. We had some kind of crooked rows of plastic, so we couldn't really squeeze in a cultivator consistently, um, because sometimes it was too narrow between the plastic, we didn't want to rip it up. So we ended up hand weeding or hoeing just once. The plastic worked well, and Marcus was surprised to see just how well the plastic worked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, highest yields, mm -hmm. least weeds. At least where the plastic was covering the ground. We only did one uh, between row hoeing uh, with long handled uh, scuffle hoes, and that was mid season, so. Toward the end of the season, um, weeds were starting to come back between the rows. We're, oh, okay. we're choosing the pesticides based on our, the results from our previous trials. In those trials, they found... Potassium bicarbonate works well against powdery mildew. Um, we know that... Um, Azarap works best against uh, squash bugs. Mm -hmm. And we know that we don't have anything really good for striped cucumber beetle, but using surround as a preventative or repellent mm -hmm. is what kind of the industry is like the industry standard. One thing that um, we don't really know about the pesticides that are allowed for organic production, which can be quite expensive, is 
um, we ha we have a sense of how effective they are, but we don't necessarily have a translation of that. Okay, if you if you apply this pesticide against this pest, will you get higher yield? And is that higher yield or quality offset by the by the cost of spraying? So in this trial, we divided each plot into half, and one of the subplots got a, a whole regime of uh, insecticides and fungicides that are allowed for organic production based on uh, established uh, based on thresholds to make a decision about whether to spray or not. And the other half was just left completely unsprayed with either insecticides or fungicides. And looking at the just looking at the data, preliminary data, um, descriptive statistics, we there was a difference between the IPM and um, non-IPM or unsprayed uh, subplots, but we haven't gotten so far as to know whether economically those sprays were were worthwhile. Mm. So there was a yield and. I think a yield and quality mm. effect of those sprays, and we ended up spraying. So just in, in so what the IPM plots received was surround um, kale and clay, starting soon after transplanting or emergence, to repel striped cucumber beetle, and then we had a lot of squash bugs. We had a very high squash bug population <laughs> in the field. And so we ended up spraying twice uh, for squash bug. Um, we used a product called Azera, which is a mixture of pyrethrin and azadiractin or neem. So we, I scouted the field every week and recorded uh, what I was finding on um, 10 plants per subplot and then used those, those scouting records to um, decide whether the field was over threshold. And then... Um, Chris Smart and I scouted for powdery mildew just by walking down the whole subplot and kind of integrating our, our estimate of, of the powdery mildew population. Um, for powdery mildew, the recommendation is to start spraying as soon as you find the first powdery mildew lesion on after you've scouted 50 plants. So that's a pretty conservative threshold. And we ended up spraying twice also for... Uh, powdery mildew, and we used last year we used a, pro a potassium bicarbonate product called Calagreen. And this year we're planning to use a different potassium bicarbonate product called Millstop. Both the striped cucumber beetle and the squash bug are very; their distribution is very clumpy and mm -hmm. spotty, so it's it's they're both kind of hard to scout for. Mm -hmm. And we ended up adding together all the weeks of of insect pressure. And there were differences between the sprayed and unsprayed plots if you look at it yeah. that way. Do you have to worry with the organic products if they'll harm any beneficial insects? Yes, you do. And I do. I haven't looked at the beneficial data yet. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that maybe we can get an idea of. Mm -hmm. um, but since we're kind of looking at uh, spraying or the IPM plots as a package, mm -hmm. you know, with, with the surround and the azera and the... So potassium bicarbonate, we we can't really necessarily oh, right. pinpoint right. if there was any one product that had an impact. I would like to add that once the squash were flowering, there was an enormous amount of bumblebees, honeybees, 
carpenter bees. When you walk into the field in the morning, you can just hear them. I think timing your sprays around when the those pollinators are not active yeah. would probably be very beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would be relatively easy because one thing I noticed is by like if you if I if I was there early in the morning there were a ton of pollinators and all the flowers were open and even by noon a lot of the flowers had closed and there were much fewer pollinators. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even 10 a.m. Yeah. They started leaving. Yeah, so I I I always urged Matt to not spray in the morning. Mm-hmm. Especially the insecticide. The other thing um, that was really cool was because we had so many squash bugs, we also had a a fly, a tachinid fly that's a squash bug parasitoid. It's got, I think it's called uh, trichopodopenopes. I'm not sure. We should look that up. (laughs) But it's a really cool looking uh, fly, very pretty big, maybe what, a quarter of an inch? And with a bright orange abdomen, and they were just flying everywhere. It was really cool. And then they lay their eggs right on the surface of the adult or the nymphs, uh, squash bug nymphs. And then those eggs hatch, and the parasitoid larvae burrow into the, uh, the squash bug and kill them. So cool. <laughs> And then yield, I, I I don't remember the specifics on yield, but I think you know we, we had zero yield. We had a complete <laughs> we had a complete crop loss, unfortunately, in the rolled rye. the The straw mulch uh, had had a little bit of a yield drag, possibly due to nitrogen immobilization. Uh, certainly not due to weeds. Yeah, maybe a little bit due to cooler soil temps. And then, as I recall, I think the cultivated and the black plastic yielded similarly. Yeah, which is, which which is a kind of a plus for for the cultivation system, because it's relatively low labor. No trans, you don't have to produce transplants. Right. Um, you know, you're cultivating a few times, and yeah, you don't have to use plastic or drip. I mean, that's it's risky if you don't have some some way to irrigate. You know that's a that's a pretty risky system, and I feel like last year was a good year for it because there's ample moisture, but in a really dry year, you'd have to be ready with overhead irrigation. We started a vlog for this project, recording the various things that were going on week by week. Talked about things like scouting for anthesis, the different yield data what the field looked like pictures yes pictures 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 updating (laughs) the field so you could watch how the different treatments were responding and we we had blogs featuring all the different insect and disease uh, insect pests as well as powdery mildew and we'll keep the blog going this year as well so folks can keep keep in touch with the project what uh what are you both most excited about for this year i'm really excited to try the rolled rye again I am super curious to see how it will perform after it didn't perform at all last year. So I think there's only room for improvement there. We've learned a little bit, so we can maybe make that better. 
Yeah, I'm interested to see if if we if we see similar results or if we get completely mm. right. If if it's if we see something similar to what we saw last year, or if the it, weather conditions can completely flip these different treatments around. Yeah, different weather, different soil, different um, weed seed bank and weed species communities, uh, and that's why we replicate these experiments more than once because yeah you, you don't want to just get a fluke okay that'll do it for this week thanks for listening this work was supported by the crop protection and pest management extension implementation program of the usda national institute of food and agriculture grant number 2021-70006-35672 session number 1027223 and by hatch grant number nyg106409 project accession number 1021304 and the new york state ipm program